The book of Exodus is the second book in the biblical Pentateuch called in Hebrew the Torah, or in the New Testament called the Law. It's written by Moses, and the theme of this book can be summarized in these words. So if you're writing these at the first page of your book, you'll write these words. Drawing near to God after redemption. That would be the theme of this book. And it comes in two parts. You'll see it in that theme. Do you hear the words? Drawing near to God after something. After what? After redemption. That's what you'll see in the text of the book. You can write right beside that if you want to write an outline. There's two points in this outline. Chapters 1 to 19 are redemption. Chapters 20 to 40 are drawing near to God or the law. So you'll find the law in chapters 20 to 40. You will find redemption in chapters 1 to 19. In fact, let's just give a little more understanding of what's in this book. Chapters 1 to 19 are stories with one chapter of laws. Did you follow that? 1 to 19, the first half is almost all story or narrative with one chapter of law. But in the second half, what you're going to find is the reverse. It's almost all law with only two stories. There's a story in chapter 24, and then there's the story of the golden calf in chapters 32 to 34. So it's almost reversed. In the first half of the book, it's going to be story after story. And in the second half of the book, it's going to be law after law. Let's try to make some sense and understand what's happening in this really remarkable book. And my plan is, as usual, to go through important verses that we may never preach a full sermon on, that deserve a sermon or a series of sermons, but I'm just going to draw your attention. For example, I don't know if we'll ever hear a sermon on James 3.1, on do not be quick to be pastors, but we need to know what that verse means, so we're going to try to do that with these 40 chapters in the next 40 minutes. In Exodus chapter 1, <coughs> Moses <coughs> begins, and notice this in chapter 1 verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt who did not know who. Now that teaches us the very important lesson about which an entire book should be written. There is nothing permanent outside of heaven. That's why the Greek philosopher, I believe it was Heraclitus, 400 years or so before our Lord Jesus was born, said, everything in the world is changing. He was competing with another Greek philosopher who said, there is no change. There is nothing, no motion. And these men were trying to make sense of the world. The one man noticing Basically, everything stays the same. People are people, kids are kids, life is life, death is death. There is basically no change. The other man said, no, I'm looking at it from a different perspective. It seems like everything is changing. Nothing is settled. In chapter 1, verse 8, we'd have something to support Heraclitus' view. There is nothing permanent outside of heaven. The previous Pharaoh loved Joseph. Now he's gone. The next Pharaoh comes in and he's going to persecute Joseph's children. That's what happens in chapter 1. We see anti-Semitism in verses 
well, really the whole chapter, but verse 10 down to verse 14, anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jews because they are Jews. Hating Jews because they are Jews is called anti-Semitism. We saw it for the first time in Genesis 43, but now here it is again in Exodus chapter 1. So if any ethnic group feels, I have been unfairly targeted because I'm Chinese or white or black, just know the Jews are the first recorded historical example of anti-Semitism. And they're the most predominant and the ones on whom anti-Semitism has taken the greatest toll. Well, the, the Pharaoh decides to kill the babies of the Jews. And there were two women who were in charge of a kind of healthcare system. They were midwives, <clears throat> and they had connections with the women who worked in that, in that kind of industry. Is that an industry or a service? And these two Hebrew midwives passed around and said, let's just, this is our line, this is what we tell everyone. Oh, before we got there, the baby was delivered. And they went back to Pharaoh and said, the, the baby was delivered. God honors them, not for their lie, but as he clearly says in verse 21, they feared God. They said to themselves, we will not obey the government. And that's one more among dozens of examples in the Bible of times when you must disobey the government. These two women disobeyed the government and it would have been a terrible sin if they had obeyed the government. Notice all the times through the Bible when obedience to the government would be disobedience to God. We do obey the government as the majority rule, but not in all areas. If the government says don't discipline your children, we ought to obey God rather than men. Or if the government says you ought to kill your children, we ought to obey God rather than men. <clears throat> Chapter 2 is the only story, the only two stories found about the prophet Moses for the first 80 years of his life. Verses 1 to 10, or is it 1 to 11? Verses 1 to 10 are the only, is the only thing we know about Moses from the time he was born until the time he's 40 years old. Now this is remarkable because Moses is writing a book, a series of books in which he plays a prominent role. But notice that he doesn't, he is not self-centered. If he were alive today, he would have no selfies on his social media account. I see this guy down here taking pictures at the, where Absa used to be, on the corner of Songozri and Croc Street. He stands there all day and he takes pictures for people. And the poses, as I'm just driving by, I'll see the poses these girls are making. And it's a sermon in itself. I would rebuke my daughter if she even wanted something like that and praise her if she didn't. But Moses is not self-centered. He's not what we call narcissistic, loving himself. He has 40 years of his life. He says nothing. He was the prince of Egypt. He could have said something great about himself, and he doesn't. There's one story in which his older sisters, the, the great one. And then he tells a second story in verses 11 to the end of the chapter. And that's the only story we know from the time he's 40 to the time he's 80. And in that story, he kills a guy. My point is, <clears throat> if the Bible were written by mere men, it would not look like this. The Bible written 
Uh, the Bible as it stands must have been written by someone who is telling the truth because the Jews clearly are not the heroes. We're going to see this in the book of Numbers, but what does Moses do but disobey God so that he can't even enter the promised land? He's not even good enough to go into the land that he worked for for 40 years. Now, if men wrote this, they would have cut that part out. They're not going to include those parts. Or they would have all these stories about how Moses was this amazing man and performed miracles. But that's just not in the text. Exodus 2 includes these two remarkable stories. As I mentioned previously in the book of Genesis, there's layer upon layer. But we're already up to the time that Moses is 80 in chapter 3. We know he's 80 because... Chapter 7, verse 7 says he's 80, and it's the same time as chapter 3. So we're already up to 80 years old, and we've only heard a few little snatches of this remarkable man whose real name we don't even know. He's named Moses by the Egyptian. What would his mother have called him? And that too is, is instructive. We're not that important, by the way. Let's just do our job and get off the stage and let the real honor go to God. Here's Moses, whose real name we don't know, whose early life is forgotten until he's 80. Don't retire very quickly. Keep serving the Lord until the end of your life. John Piper likes to preach that. He has a section in his book, Don't Waste Your Life on Retirement. And he says, if by retirement you mean walking along the beach collecting shells... Don't retire. But if by retire you mean, I'm going to stop working so that I can give my life to something that really matters. In that case, retire as quickly as possible. But serve the Lord like Moses did, who begins his real life at 80. Chapter 3 and 4, this is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture. Because for 200 years, God has not spoken. This is the first speech that God is going to give for 200 years. Now, do you remember in Genesis, he spoke to Adam and Eve. He waits hundreds of years, and then he speaks to Noah. Hundreds of years pass, he speaks to Abraham. You see, the revelation from God in the Old Covenant was not every day. It was not a miracle every day. In the Old Testament, we have the stopping of lions, the parting of Red Sea. There's hundreds of years between each of these things. And what made their faith so great was their clinging to the few words. They're just given these few verses. Let's just hold on to this. I know the life looks odd and my father died and nothing happened. We just got to hold on to these words that we were given. <clears throat> Moses had to believe the stories he was told as a baby and hold on to those stories for 80 years. And then God speaks. And it's the first time in 200 years. It's in chapter 3 and verse number 6. And when he speaks, notice what happens. Look at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And what does Moses do? Hides his face. For what reason? He's terrified. We cannot focus too much on the fear of God. Because God is the great fact of the universe. 
And when you come to this church, it's practice. We are practicing for the day you're going to have to stand in front of him. And when that day happens, if you had a serious, deadly serious, what the Puritans called blood-earnest serious pastor, you're going to thank God at that day. And if you had a chipper guy who told lots of jokes, your knees are going to be shaking. Moses speaks to God, hides his face in terror. There's no laughing and joking. There's no lighthearted banter. This fear of God sunk deep into this prophet. And we're going to see it come up throughout the books. Well, in chapter 3, the only thing that we see about the covenant that God speaks to Moses about is the land. That's interesting because in Genesis 12, he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed for you, through you. Whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed, and I'll give you land. But here in, in Exodus 3, 200 years later, he only says at the beginning, land. Let all those who say Israel doesn't belong in that land or doesn't have any claim on that land, remember that when God spoke to Moses, he didn't talk about the other elements of the covenant. He didn't even mention the future Messiah. He says, there's a land and I'm giving it to these people. It was very important when Jehovah mentioned it. He mentions it in verse 8 and says, there is a good land to which I'm bringing them. Now notice in verse 14, the first time we see the name of God in the story. The first time we see the name of God in the story is in verse 14. And God said to Moses, after Moses asks in verse 13, when I go, who should I tell them? What name should I give? There's the Baals. That's, the, that's an ancient Syriac name for Lord. And it was the name of God. And there were many other gods at that time, as we're going to see in the text. He said, Who should I say sends me? And God says, I am that I am. Now there is a wealth of information in this. God says at that moment, he reveals himself as the fundamental doctrine of, listen to the big word, ontology. Ontology is the study of being. Perhaps you've never even thought or heard the word ontology. Ology, study of, ont, being. What is ontology? It's the first principles, and we all have an ontology. Let me just summarize ontology, a Christian ontology, with this. It's Cornelius Van Til's famous summary in this statement, and it's, it's found right here. Ontology, Christian ontology begins with this. There is a God. Where do we get that from? I am that I am. That's the first Fact and reality. What is real in the world? There's a God. That's the most real fact. There's nothing more real. Your life, your death, cold drink, your child's sickness is not more real than the fact that there is a God. What's the second fact that Cornelius Van Til drilled into is all of his students? You are not God. It's not you. So there's two different parts. You get those two down and they're all in the name. I am that I am. It's not you, Moses. It's me. It's not Pharaoh. It's me. It's not the king. It's not the emperor. It's me. I'm this God. And that differentiates me from all the other ones who call themselves 
Lord or King. I am the God. I'm the one great reality, and then under me is everything else. So Cornelius Van Til would do what on the chalkboard? He would draw two circles. The first one is very large, and that represents? And the second one is smaller, and that represents everything else. That's ontology summarized right there. And that's coming from Exodus chapter 3. The basics of philosophy are mastered by Moses, who was the first philosopher in history. Well, he says, I am that I am. But then he goes on. <clears throat> then he goes on. And God said, moreover to Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. And there he reveals, as you'll see in verse 15, in verse 15, do you have the word Lord in small capital letters? Do you see that? That's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't know how to pronounce it because it's four Hebrew letters. Hebrew makes vowels by putting dots below or above the letters. But those dots were not recorded in the Hebrew Old Testament. So there's four letters, a Y and an H and a W and an H. You can either say Yahweh or Jehovah, but all the vowel sounds I just put in there, we don't know what those vowel sounds are, which is one more way that God hides himself in the darkness and says, I'll reveal some things to you, but not all of it. I'm too great for you. I'm beyond you. Remember, there's two circles and I'm the big one. And so even when he reveals himself, even in his self-disclosure, he still keeps something back for himself. Here is the first time that he reveals himself as Yahweh, Jehovah. This is his name, <clears throat> his covenant name. Every other God in the ancient Near East was given a name by the people. Only this God gave his own name because he's the first one in history who reveals himself. Notice even Islam, which is a Christian sect, they pretend to believe the Bible and they came 600 years after Jesus and said that Jesus is a prophet whom they follow. So they are a Christian sect. What's the name of their God? Allah. That's just the Arabic word for G-O-D. That's not the Arabic word for Jehovah. Jehovah reveals himself. What other God? Stand up. What other God in the world has a name and tells you? This one does. And if any does, it's a cheap copy from Exodus chapter 3. Well, this remarkable, remarkable book begins with God revealing himself to Moses. Look in chapter 3, verse 19. He tells Moses, go to the king of Egypt, but I'm sure he won't listen to you. Because God knows everything that happens. In verses 21 to 22, he tells them up front, I'm going to redeem you. And when they come out, even though they're dirt poor, they're going to take all the wealth from the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to be giving them gold and silver. Just get out of here. Get out of our land. That's called spoiling the Egyptians. And it's used today to refer to Christians who go to the world to take truths that maybe some student or scholar in the world learned and studied these things, and now we can learn from them. For example, when I speak about Aristotle or Plato, I'm spoiling the Egyptians. Aristotle and Plato do not believe in Jesus, but I go to them and learn some wisdom that they have and bring back that wisdom. The Egyptians had some good gold. 
And, the, and the, the Israelites could use it. And the Egyptians said, take it and go, take it and go. Oh, thank you, I will take that and I'll use it in the future to honor Jehovah. If you can honor Jehovah with any truth from the world, then go and take it because someday in heaven you will find the clear path right back to God. That truth, if it's found in Islam, if it's found in Buddha, if it's found in any of the cultures of the world, that truth ultimately came from God or it's not truth at all. So go take any truths you can find in the world any good you can find from the Tsongas or the Vendas or the Zulus or the Americans, if there is anything good there, whatever good you can find, if it really is good, take it. Because anything that's really good came from the fountain of all good, who is God. In chapter 4, he speaks to Moses. And in 5, Moses goes back and speaks to the people. And when Moses goes back and speaks to the people... They believe him. Look at chapter 4, verse 31. And the people did what? They believed. They believed. But only for a few days. Until chapter 6, verse 9, when they stopped believing. And you can have a chain in your Bible of every time they believe, they quit. They believe, they quit. They believe, they quit. That's from Luke chapter 8, verse 13, when he says the third soil, it believes for a little time, and then it falls away. All through the history of the world, which is why that, that opponent of Heraclitus says the whole world's the same. All through the history of the world, you have people who say, oh yeah, I'm going to be a Christian and they come Sunday morning, Sunday night for about four weeks. But come December, where are you going to be? What's going to happen in six weeks, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years? How dependent will you be? See, you see, these, Israels are, these Israelites are a great example for us to learn from. They believed. Oh, wow, I need to do that. Well, they're going to quit in about two days when life gets hard. So... Watch yourself. Well, chapter 5 is the story that they get no straw. Chapter 6, Moses goes back to them. In chapter 6, verse 3, the name Jehovah is spelled out in the text. Chapter 6, verse 3. In chapter 7 to 10, we have the plagues. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. And you'll read a very difficult phrase. Can someone read that verse, please? I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, let's just get some statistics here. 16 times Pharaoh's hard heart is referred to. How many times? Eight of those times, it says God hardened it. Three of the times, it says Pharaoh hardened it. And five of the times, it's passive. It doesn't say who hardened it. The heart was hard. So three times, it's Pharaoh. Five times, it just happens. We don't know who did it. Eight times it specifically says Jehovah did it. But the first three times, Jehovah says, I am hardening his heart. Before Pharaoh ever gets around to it. Brothers and sisters, do you have a place in your understanding of the world for a circle that is so big, he can step into the small circle and do what he wants? Do we really believe that he is the potter and we are simply clay? 
That's in this passage. It's going to be quoted in Romans chapter 9 where Paul says exactly that. He says, for this reason I raised up Pharaoh to show in him my mighty power. Romans 9 verse 16. And then eight verses later, he was a vessel of wrath. Do we have a place in our theology for this? Do we have a place in our worship? Psalm 9 verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgments that he executes. And in Revelation chapter 14, even the lamb will watch the just and righteous execution of his holy wrath. These are, these are statements too big for us. They're too grand for us. The best thing you can do is like Moses, hide your face and cover your mouth. Because this God is not asking for your advice. He's not taking votes. He's not interested in being described as nice. Well, in chapter 7, words come before the miracles. He talks. He rationally treats with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not rational, so he brings power. He tries to talk like a policeman is taught. A policeman is taught there's an escalating scale of force. You don't start with your gun. You start by asking questions. And then if force has to escalate, you escalate until deadly force That's good logical progression, and it's seen right here in Exodus chapter 7. Moses talks to Pharaoh. Then in chapter 7, he brings signs to Pharaoh. But notice this in chapter 7, verse 11. Then Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers, and the magicians of Egypt, they also did the same miracles. There are at least three places in the Bible where servants of Satan perform miracles. Exodus chapter 7, right here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, where false prophets perform miracles, and Revelation chapter 13. I draw that to your attention so that you would not say to yourself, if someone does a miracle, I should go to their church. No, the question is, by whose power did they do that miracle? Because Satan has been given and delegated some power, and it has not been taken from him. He is the God of this world, the prince and the ruler of this world, and he has power. And you must not mock him because he does have power and he delegates that out to the servants who are in his employ. In chapter 7, the plagues begin. 717, 1, 8, 2, 2, 816, 3. And intermixed with this, there are promises from Pharaoh, false broken promises. That he gives, he'll give at least four of them. Oh, okay, I'll let them go. And then as soon as the terror leaves, he changes his mind, reminding us that there is nothing permanent on this earth. If you have a husband or a wife who says, I love you, thank God for that. But remember, though you love them, they can change. There's only one permanent thing in all of existence. And it's, we found it from our study of ontology. I am that I am. That's permanent. Nothing else. Which is why people gravitate toward those societies that are most permanent. When people are living in war-torn South Sudan, they rush to Kenya. It's more stable. When they're in Kenya, they try to go south to Tanzania. Or further south to where? South Africa. And if they could get a green card and go to Europe, they'd go there. And they hit the jackpot if they can get where? 
People are always looking for stability because it's rooted in the human heart. We want something that's absolutely solid. And finally, the only thing solid is I am that I am. And that's one of the very good things God is doing in the destruction of the most stable societies. Today, we are watching that destruction. Uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 21 is the fourth plague. God sends these plagues one after another. They're fascinating to study, especially how he protects his people. He sends the plagues on the unbelievers, and then he begins to warn his people and says to them, Obey me in this. I'm sending this plague. It won't hit you as long as you do what I say and put your cows away. If you don't obey me, then the plagues that are coming on the wicked, they'll come on you too, even though you're my people. My favorite one would come toward the very end. Chapter 9, we see the fifth plague in verse 3, the sixth plague in verse 9, the seventh plague in verse 18. And then all throughout this are marvelous verses. But for time we're running. Just look at these quickly. 9.16. In very deed for this cause I raised you up to show in you my power so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. He's talking to Pharaoh. God raised up Pharaoh for what purpose in verse 16? So that God's power would be shown. Where? God has always had a desire that his name would be exalted in all the earth. This is missions in the Old Testament. God has always said, I want my name to be known by the Shonas and by the Swahilis. I want my name to be known by the Yorubas in Nigeria. I want my name to be exalted among the Arabs. It will be honored among the Chinese. The Nepalese will love my name. I want my name to go to the ends of the earth and even the people groups with 30,000 people. That's almost nothing. They have no language arts written in their languages because there's so few people. Why even waste your time writing? And God says, my name will be honored among those groups with 30,000. It comes right back to here. Don't you remember David and Goliath? He, David even said, as he ran to meet Goliath, he pulled up short about 30 meters away before he slung the, his stone. He pulled up and Goliath said, what are you out here for? And David said, I'm coming here to deliver you to the birds of the air and the Uh, so that they will eat your carcass, so that the name of the God of Israel will be known in all the earth. They kill kill, uh, giants so that God's name will be known in the islands. These gods are being trampled on. Pharaoh's raised up and then thrown down so that God's name will be great among the Vendas and the Tsongas and in Valdesia and in Zimbabwe. God's name is planned to be great there. What a marvelous verse. Someone needs to preach on that. But there's compassion always mixed with judgment. Look at verse 19. This is spoken to the Gentiles, spoken to the heathen. Send therefore now, gather your cattle and all that you have in the field. For on every man and beast which will be found in the field and not brought home, the hail will come down on them and they will die. Verse 20. The one who feared the word of of Jehovah among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee to the houses. He that regarded not the word of of Jehovah left his servants and his cattle in the field. Compassion. Isn't that like our God? He even says to the unbelievers, here's your, I'll give you grace. I'll give you light. I'll give you hope. Fear me, love me, trust in me. And I'll even save your cattle. I'll save your paint job if you listen to me. He's full of compassion. Oh, so much. Have you ever noticed in verse 23 and 24 that the hail is mixed with thunder and fire. 
so that it had never been such like that in the world before. Chapter 9, verse 27, false humility. Pharaoh comes in and says, I have sinned. Did you notice that all the people who said that in the Bible, here's all the people who've said the phrase, I have sinned. Balaam said it falsely. Achan said it falsely. Saul said it falsely. Shimei said it falsely. Judas said it falsely. I have sinned before the Lord. Only two people in the Bible said the phrase, I have sinned and meant it. Who were they? David and the prodigal son. Those are the only two in the Bible, which maybe is a good proportion. If you find seven people who say, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry. Most likely, 72% of them are liars. 28%, that's two-sevenths. 28% of them are probably telling the truth. 72%. Balaam, Achan, Saul, Shimei, Judas, false humility. David, prodigal son. The prodigal son's a parable, yeah? So even that, that's fiction. Yeah, so, okay, that's one out of six, which would put us at 84%. 84% of the people are probably lying if it's historically accurate according to what the examples we see in Scripture. Um, chapter 10, <clears throat> we see the purpose of the plagues again in verses 1 and 2. I'm doing this so that my name will be honored. But look at this, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2. So that you may tell in the ears of your son and of your son's son the things that I have wrought in Egypt. And my signs, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God has always thought multi-generationally. He wants this to pass on. If someone says, this is an idea you keep returning to. It's returned to in the Bible, and I just love my kids. I want my kids to love God, and their kids, and their kids' kids. We need to talk and pray and think that way. Well, the eighth plague comes in chapter 10, verse 4. He says again, I have sinned in chapter 10, verse 16, but it's false humility. Again, in chapter 10, verse 21, the ninth plague, darkness on the land. The most remarkable phrase, perhaps, in chapter 10, verse 21, darkness which could be felt. How can you feel the dark? God has a way. Jehovah, I am who I am. He can make darkness hurt. Chapter 11 and 12 is the Passover and the 10th plague. In chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 11 and 12, we have the laws for the Passover and the remarkable description of the Passover in chapter 12 and all the the similarities with our Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 12. Every man has to take a lamb, chapter 12, verse 3. Everyone has to do this. No one can get alone, can get away. First of all, the men take it for their house, but within the house, everyone in the house has to take a bite. So men, bring Christ to your home and make sure everyone in the home takes him. That's 10, verse 3. 10, verse 4. If the household's too small for the lamb... The lamb's big enough, but the house might be too small. Then go get more people. As a missionary and evangelist, I love that. The house might be, the vendors might be too small, so go to the tongues as well. Give the gospel to everyone because this lamb, can, he can feed them all. Chapter 10, verse 5, your lamb must be pure. He must be male. 
It's not an accident that there's a son of God. He must be male. In verse 6, you keep him in your house for two weeks. Keep the lamb in the house. He's got to be near to you. You've got to be familiar with him. He's got to be loved by you. The kids have to cry when they see the lamb die. Then you kill it because your sins were active in this. Verse 7, you have to take the blood and you personally have to apply the blood on the doorposts. Oh, how wonderful. Chapter 12, the Pas- uh, chapter 12, verse 12, the Passover is an attack on the gods of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, everything we do in life, if we understand it correctly, is an attack on false gods. We do not, not attack with weapons. No, never. Don't give me any physical weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But everything we do should be an a microaggression or a macroaggression against Islam and Buddha and Catholicism, against African traditional religion, which is why I'm against multiculturalism. Everything that's happening here is an attack on their religion. The reason Egyptians were anti-Semites was because of their religion. I love blacks. You can eat at my table. You can marry my kids if you're a true Christian. But I despise the religion that bound you and the culture it produced. And if there are good things from your culture by common grace, fair enough. I'll eat the busanyama. It's delicious. I thank God for for the beautiful clothes that I've been given. But the culture that comes from that religion... It needs to be thrown down and stepped on. And that's, he says explicitly in verse 12, I am by this Passover throwing down every part of Egyptian culture that does not bow to I am that I am. And all Christians need to be united saying, I serve I am that I am, not the country of my birth. Well, it goes on just like this. Oh, how wonderful. The 12th chapter is the Passover. It's the killing of the firstborn son of Egypt. And then look at this, chapter 12, verse 38. A mixed multitude went out with them. (laughs) That means they got a lot of Egyptians to go with them. It was not only the Jews. There were Egyptians going with them. They were evangelizing The truth that came to them brought them along. Chapter 13 and 14, we're moving to the Red Sea. Chapter 14, the Red Sea parts. Oh, how much. How beautiful. Chapter 14, they are sore afraid in verse 10. They cry out. They're they're little faith. They're doubtful. They're quick to forget God's grace. Isn't that like us? But in verse 14, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. They move forward. Spurgeon preached in verse 15, go forward. He preached those two words, go forward. And he told the church, go onward. Though it looks like an ocean, go onward. Though you wonder how the victory will come, go onward. In that great sermon. Is that in lectures to my student, students or is that in um, the, last, the last book he wrote? The, the addresses to the college. That's in lectures. That's a fantastic chapter. Go forward from that verse, those two words. Notice in verse 17, he not only hardens the hearts of the Pharaoh, he hardens the hearts of the Egyptians. 
they follow. In verse 19, the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, was with them. In verse 15, we have a song of redemption. They sing and say, oh God, you saved us. They are thrilled that they've been saved. But even as the music notes are still sounding, look at chapter 15, verse 24. What do the people do? 1524, it's the first reference outside of Egypt. You can make a chain through your Bible, through the Pentateuch, of all the times they complain. Here it begins. Chapter 16, verse 2 is the second one. The whole congregation of Israel murmured. They start complaining. They get what they need. And rather than remembering, oh, we got what we need. Now let's go and ask. Instead, when they don't have something, they begin complaining again. So do I ask you now, who is right? The philosopher who said everything's the same, or the philosopher who said everything's different? We've, we all complain, don't we? We're all like them. Like what I said earlier. They're writing a book where the Jews are God's chosen people, and they're bad. And they're foolish, and they're forgetful, and they're complainers, and they're whiners. Isn't that like you? So there is no change, right? Everything's the same. Or is it all change? You look at these guys. They're blessed one moment. The next moment they're whining. And then they're, oh, thank you, thank you. Chapter 16, verse 2, they're whining again. It's change. What is it? Change or the same? Chapter 16 is the manna. And also, not only with the manna, but it is the revelation of the Sabbath day. Not at the law. It's revealed here in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 23, we have the revelation of the Sabbath. I am still trying to do a comprehensive study on this, but in my cursory study, my introductory study, I have not found on the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, any religious observances that they were required to do. They weren't required to pray, they weren't required to study the Torah, they were required to rest, to sleep. It was not a day parallel to the day that I'm ending now, our third church service, and yours. It was not like Hudson Taylor said, who on Sunday, he went to church in the morning, and then he spent from the afternoon until dark evangelizing in the slums of London. It was not like Robert Murray McShane, who preached in the morning, preached in the afternoon, preached again in the afternoon, and commonly woke up at 6 a.m. and did not want to go to bed until 12 midnight on the Lord's Day because he did not want to miss one minute of serving God on the Lord's Day. Can you imagine that? Please let me go to bed at 10. Sundays are exhausting. That's not like the Sabbath, which was given to rest. Which is why Hebrews 4 says there remains a rest to the people of God. The Sabbath is given to Israel to say, someday there will be justification by faith where you're saved not by your baptism or by your church attendance, not by reading your Bible. It's not by you. It's by him dying for sinners. That's why the Sabbath is given. Yes, you've got a lot of things you need to work on Israel, but one day out of seven, 14% of your time, stop everything so that someday you'll be able to understand justification by faith. That's why it's given. And that's the meaning of the Sabbath. Well, manna is given to them. Chapter 17 is a war. A war with Amalek. They fight with Amalek. And they defeat Amalek at the end of chapter 17. Much in that, because it's going to come back to them 
About 500 years later, when Saul, the first king of Israel, does not kill the Amalekites, because God's anger grew from this time right here in chapter 17, it grows from here, and God gives them 400 years. Many people, when they get to 1 Samuel 15, they see that Saul is told, kill all the Amalekites, and unbelievers and atheists will say, well, that's a terrible thing to do. No, no, no. Back here in Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites picked a fight with God's people. And God had them whooped at that time and said, now, hey, stop all your sin and listen, follow my law. Look, I'm giving you my people. They didn't annihilate you. They could have. They won in chapter 17, but they didn't annihilate them all. And for 400 years, God is merciful to the Amalekites and they shake their fist in his face. My wonder is not when I get to 1 Samuel 15 that God says, destroy the men, women, and children. My, my amazing uh, conclusion is, why didn't he do it 300 years earlier? If you had been in charge, you would have killed them back in Exodus 17. You said, what? That's the way you treat my kids? All of you are gone. God says, I'll let you live another 450 years. Just stop that. Don't murder your children anymore. Don't worship those stocks and statues. And they didn't listen. That's all beginning in chapter 17. Chapter 18 is Jethro, the father-in-law, who comes and says, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. This is a chapter on business leadership. Delegation. The wisdom of the Bible on every page. The archetypal nature of the stories. You can just keep going deeper and always find more wisdom. There's practical wisdom so that your, your house and family won't be a mess. And there's deeper spiritual wisdom so that you can find the gospel even in Jethro. The father who comes to the son to save him. Here's Jethro coming to Moses. And Moses gives three, or God gives requirements for these leaders. Look in verse 21, 18, 21. Moreover, you will provide out of all the people able men who do three things. What are they? Fear God, never lie, and they hate bribes. They don't love money. They never lie. They fear God. This is chapter 18, verse 21. 18, 21. The, remar- the requirements for good leadership are not a degree from Vitz University. I hear this all the time when American elections come up. They say, oh, well, what experience does he have? Was he the governor of a province? Was he this? Was he that? You know, there's three big requirements. I want to know, do you fear God? Are you honest? You won't lie ever, and you just don't love money. Money can't move you. You never lie. And you f- Wouldn't you like to have a president like that? I really don't care. If you were so-and-so fighting in the freedom fight struggle, or if you were this, or you got this PhD, or you got whatever, I don't care about really any of that. I'd like to know, can your third grade teacher say, the kid never lied? And can your college professor say, it was so honest? And can your mom and dad and your neighbors say, the guy is just an honest man, never lies, and he fears God, and money doesn't move him. Make that man the president, and you'll have a good country. Chapter 19 is the final story. They arrive at Mount Sinai. Look what happens when they arrive at Mount Sinai. In verses 12 and 13, I wrote the letters DP. You may want to do this throughout the the Pentateuch, throughout the Torah. DP, death penalty. So you can easily see what the death penalties were given for. In chapter 19, verse 12 and 13, there was a death penalty if you touched the mountain. You come near to God's place and touch him, you die Even if you're a goat, animals that touch the mountain die. 
19, 12, and 13. Look what happens when God's presence comes down. Verse 16. It came to pass on the third day in the morning, there were seven descriptions. Number one, thunders. Number two, lightning. Number three, a thick cloud. Number four, a voice that sounds like a trumpet, exceeding loud. So loud that all the people were terrified. Can you imagine this? You see these thunders and lightnings and a cloud and this blasting trumpet. Is that words? I can't quite tell. C.S. Lewis describes in one of his books a voice that sounded like a violin speaking words. Isn't that beautiful? This is a trumpet speaking words. Look in verse 18. Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke, smoking all around it. And then the Lord descends in a fire. And then there's an earthquake. The whole mountain is shaking. Nothing shakes mountains except the, fount- the foundation of all being. You remember that study of ontology? I am that I am, the big circle? When the big circle gets near the middle circle, the middle circle shakes. Even if the middle circle is as big as the universe. It shakes when that big circle comes near it. That's what happens in Mount Sinai. And in verse 23, Moses said to Jehovah, the people cannot come to the mountain for you charged us and said, get near. You see in the old covenant, there's no access to God. You stand back and be terrified. He might come to you, but you can't go to him. He's too big for you. He's too terrifying. He's too fiery and dark and otherly. Now in chapter 20, we change. That's the story. What did you notice about that story? There's no happy ending. Do you see that? That's important for two reasons. Number one, because it's the old covenant. Don't look for happy endings in the old covenant. And number two, because we're not done with the story yet. This is a five book series. We're done with the story up to this part. But we got more to go in the story. Now what's going to happen is laws are given. In chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm going to move through these much more quickly. They'll come in sections. So above chapter 20 in your Bible, if you have space, I'll give you five headings that will cover the rest of the book. Chapter 20 to 23 are laws. 20 to 23. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Chapters 21 to 23 are what's called case Laws. Case laws are how a country should be arranged. So men who are covenant theologians will commonly go to Exodus 21 to 23 and say, the government of South Africa should be arranged according to Exodus 20 to 23. These should be the laws for our country. So men like Peter Hammond in Cape Town, who does many good things, says Exodus 20 to 23 should be the constitution for South Africa. Notice as you go through Exodus 20 to 23, every time you write the letters DP, death penalty. Do you want to have death penalty for everything that's in there? You just keep reading and see what there are. Ask yourself, what what kind of society would you have? You'd have a society without freedom of religion. Do you want that? Well, maybe you're a Christian and you say, that would be good if we didn't have Muslims. Would it? Really? It would be good? Well, what happens then to the Catholic Church. Is the Catholic Church the only church and no Protestants or the Protestant no Catholic? 
You say, okay, because you're Protestant. You say, well, Protestant. Okay, the Protestant church, no Catholics. So what are you going to do with the Catholics? Send them away? Force them to convert? Within the Protestant, who's on top? Dutch Reformed or Charismatic? Who gets to decide which is the real Christianity? Is it Bushiri? Or is it Dr. Vandermeer? Who gets to decide? Is it a Reformed Baptist? <laughs> Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Of these commandments, have you ever noticed that there are two that are very long? No idols, number two, and the Sabbath, number four. Those are very long. Why? You have to come back and study verse by verse. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments to 23. If you're still writing this, here are the other four categories underneath that. Chapter 24 is a story. So you can write that underneath 20 to 23. Story. Narrative. Who need, does someone need a pen? 24 is a narrative. Then look at chapters 25 to 31. Or mark them down. You can mark this if you're giving a list. 25 to 31, and you can mark that as ceremony or tabernacle. Either one. I put it as ceremony because I'm categorizing these in the kinds of laws that they are. It's how to build the tabernacle. 25 to 31, the tabernacle or the ceremonies. And then 32 to 34 is the golden calf or story or narrative. 32 to 34. And then the final section of the book is 35 to 40, and it's tabernacle or ceremony. I wrote ceremony. Perhaps you want to write tabernacle. So then what you have from, for the second half of the book is five simple sections. Here they are. You have the laws for society, chapters 20 to 23. Then you have a short story in chapter 24. Then you have the tabernacle for 25 to 31. Then 32 to 34 is the golden calf. And then you have the tabernacle being built, 35 to 40. There is much that could be and should be studied in this. But let me make these points in summarizing the second half of the book. You see what God has done is, first of all, he said, redemption comes before laws. What you're going to need is you're actually going to need God to come and take you out of bondage. You're tied up to your sins. That's why I said this morning, you're going to need God to speak to you and say, Lloyd. And then Lloyd says, no, I've got my music. Lloyd. No, I'm busy with all my work. Lloyd. And the voice changes. And when the voice changes, you don't say I'm busy anymore. You turn to him. That's the picture of chapters 1 to 19. The Jews weren't seeking to be freed it was God who after 200 years said, ah, now they're really deep in bondage. That's what I wanted. Now I'll raise up Moses, whose real name we don't even know. And his first 80 years is nothing. I'll raise him up. And he can't talk. And he's going to change. And he's going to make some terrible mistakes. But that's okay because I use people with terrible mistakes. And I'm going to use him to take my people out. They weren't doing anything. They, the only thing they contributed to this was the sin that made it necessary. I'm going to pull them out of bondage. After they're pulled out of bondage, then I'm going to reveal all the obedience they must give me. Does that sound like the Christian life? You must be brought out of your bondage to sin. You're bound with all you. Look at your last 10 years of your life. 
bound with all these sins. You're going to need him to just break those chains. And then you're going to need him to reveal the laws. If he doesn't tell you the laws, you won't be able to guess them. You need him to tell you the laws. You need him to tell you what deserves the death penalty because you can't guess it correctly. You need him to tell you how to get near because if you even come near to him, if you even touch that mountain, man, woman, child, or animal, you're going to die. But he does make a way. That's the second half. That's the tabernacle. And it's really an exciting study. The tabernacle is the way to approach God. And I'll just say these few comments about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was so complex. There were so many difficulties. You had to make all the curtains in a certain way. You had to make the poles in a certain way. You had to make the inner court and the outer court in a certain way. It was very complex. There were rules for how to walk in. There were rules for times and days to walk in. There were rules for the priests that had to be there to meet you. Only certain priests could be there and only certain priests could go in. Only certain animals could be brought in only certain ways. All of that to tell you it is a hard thing to come near to God. And it tells you this. God didn't wait until they got into their country to give them this tabernacle. See, why doesn't he wait until he builds the temple? Because they need access to God immediately. They're going to be sinning immediately. They need forgiveness of sins now. The tabernacle teaches us that we can draw near to God. When would you rather be born? 3,000 years ago with the tabernacle? Or today with Christ, who is the tabernacle and the priest and the offering all in one? Exodus tells us this. Drawing near to God after redemption. May we learn those lessons for ourselves and love this wonderful book. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would come and save us from our sins. Encourage our hearts in the Lord. Help us to understand this marvelous book. Help us to read it and to love all that you've told us. Help us to understand these laws and the laws of Christ in the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.